Another uh, confession I have to make is that uh, you can take your bulletin um, and you can grab one of the pens that's in a, a seat near you and just cross out the bottom half of the outline. I was feeling really ambitious on um, Thursday when I submitted my outline, and as, I, as the message evolved and grew over the weekend, um, I realized that I was going to have to fly through some of the most important parts of Scripture, and so I decided I'm going to actually wait on that until next week. So this is sort of a two-part message, so you have to come back next week when we finish um, the story. So um, as I was preparing, though, and you can turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7, that's where we're going to be camping out this morning. As I was preparing for uh, our time together, uh, a scene from my vacation sort of came back to me. We, uh, we went to California and had the chance to go to the beach when we were there. And one of my favorite things to do uh, with my kids at the beach is to build sandcastles. And um, Ethan's four and a half, and, and so he does a, a decent job of building sandcastles. And, and growing up in Southern California for the first 12 years of my life, I, I consider myself to be a little bit of an expert in the sandcastle building department. And so I took him under my wing and showed him how to build a, a good sandcastle, you know, with a moat and a drawbridge and a few uh, king in the palace, things like that, you know. Um, but here's what I've learned and observed about sandcastles. They never end well. They never end well, especially with little kids. They never end good. There's three ways that sandcastles end. None of them are good. Some of them are better than the other way, though, okay? The best way a sandcastle ends is if the tide rises and knocks out said sandcastle. That's the best way it ends, because usually you don't see it happen, but it still crushes it, okay? Second worst way, second, and we're going towards the worst, so um, second way is if another kid on the beach happens to be chasing a frisbee and run through said sandcastle. That's not good, but, but you can't get all that mad at a stranger. Most of us have some sort of filter in us that says this is unacceptable to be so mad at somebody whose name I don't know, okay? Um, third way, and this is the worst way that the sandcastle ends is that one of your siblings walks through the sandcastle, right? So, so my daughter, um, Ethan and I would work for a while building a sandcastle, and my daughter, in all of her cuteness and all of her innocence, inevitably would cluelessly walk through said sandcastle, and Ethan, my four-year-old, would just be absolutely irate. Now, that's bad because you can hold that grudge for a day or more because you get to see them and reminded of the fact that they crushed your sandcastle. I started to realize, man, I think, I feel like that sometimes with life. I feel like, I feel sometimes like life is a perpetual building of sandcastles. Where, where, like, I put my effort and I put my energy into something and the tide rises or somebody just comes and walks right through it and, and wipes out all of the quote-unquote work that I'd done. And anybody feel like that where you look at your, your bank account and you go, when in the heck did that happen? Like, I thought we were tracking one way, and then the tide rose and just wiped it out. Where did all the money go? And some of us feel that way in relationships where we feel like we're making progress, and we're, we're, we're getting to a point where things are going to be healthy, and the tide rises and, and comes in and just sort of knocks out the sandcastle. Some of us feel that way in our, in our workplace, where it seems like every step forward results in somehow two steps back, and it's just hard to get a grip on it. I don't know about you, but even in my relationship with God, there's times where I feel like I'm building sandcastles, where, where I make progress, and, and I'm doing, quote-unquote, doing good. 
And then something happens and it just sort of derails me and the tide rises and it comes in and everything I worked for sort of is back to ground zero. Anybody with me there? It just feels like we're building sandcastles. See, see, we've been looking at the life of David this summer and we're looking and look at a passage this morning where God essentially says to David, stop, stop. Like David's in his sandbox and he's gathering sand and he even like lays down some water to make it hard so that the sand will solidify a little bit. And God just says, stop, stop. Because you have a choice with your life, David. This is what God's going to say to David and it's what he says to us too. You have a choice with your life. You can either build sandcastles or you can build the eternal kingdom, but you can't build both. But you can't build both. Let's jump into 2 Samuel chapter 7 as we look at the way that God invites David to build something better than David. The context of this passage, as we've talked about over the last few weeks, is that um, David's life is sort of oscillates between some really high highs and some really low lows. And over the last two weeks, we've been looking at some of the heights of where David uh, gets to. You'll remember last week that David became king and unified the whole kingdom of Israel. He moved Israel's sort of their capital city into the city of Jerusalem. And in chapter 6 that we're actually skipping over, um, David brings the Ark of the Covenant, which was God's physical manifest presence with his people, back to the city of Jerusalem. Or actually, not back to, to the city of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem has become the symbol of not only political power and David's military reign, but also of of spiritual authority. It's the religious center of the Israelite world as well. And so David is at a period in time where, where things are going really, really well. And today we pick up in a passage of scripture that many theologians call one of the most important passages of Scripture in the Old Testament for evangelical faith. And here's how it begins. Uh, Verse 1, chapter 7. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Now, now sort of contextually, um, they had a, a tabernacle, a tent, that sort of covered the ark of the covenant, the ark of God. Now, this tent at this point in time is a few hundred years old. I don't know if you've left any sheets out for the last few centuries in your backyard. But you can imagine that a tent that's that old could get a little bit worn and a little bit tattered and a little bit uh, aged. So David says... To Nathan, the prophet, the pastor of sort of the the whole nation, he says, listen, is it right that I live in this awesome house of cedar and God lives in a tent? Verse 3, Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. So Nathan reads between the lines and sort of um, assumes that David wants to build a temple, to build a dwelling place for God that's better than his current tent. Isn't it interesting that David is at a moment of rest, and instead of enjoying his rest, he starts to think about what he can do. Instead of just enjoying the fact that God has been gracious to him and God has been good to him, he wants to build 
And in fact, what he does is he starts to go down a road that um, every other culture and every other lowercase g God would ask of his people. You see, during this time and this place, it was common for a ruler to sort of choose a God. And in order to appease that God, in order to make that God happy, they would build a temple to that God. So in the ancient world, they had massive, ornate, beautiful temples to these gods. And essentially, the temple was a bartering tool. It was a way to say to that God, lowercase g God, hey, I'm going to build this for you, and in return, all I ask is that you make me victorious and you make my rise in power um, extend further than I could imagine and let's just enter into an agreement. I'll build you something and you bless me. And what we're going to learn about the God of the Bible and about being a follower now of Jesus is that he's completely different than every other God. At the core of every other religion, if you whittle it down, what you're going to find at the base core level of every other religion is if you do this and are a good boy or a good girl, then God is happy and he will bless you. And what God's going to say to David in this passage is, no, 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 no. You don't understand. It's not if you build me something, David, that I'm going to bless you. It's in spite of the fact that you're not going to build me anything that I'm going to bless you. Listen to the way that God responds to Nathan who delivers this message to David. Verse 4. That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, this is like, you can just see the writing on the wall. Nathan says, yeah, David, go for it. That night, the word of the Lord comes to him, has a dream where he's like, oh man, I'm going to have to go back and take that back. Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in the house from the day that I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Evidently, God is a huge fan of backpacking, okay? He's like, don't chain me down, man. Do not chain me down. I like the tent. What you're going to build isn't going to be that cool in a few years anyway. Allow me to live in the tent. I like to backpack. Okay. (laughs) Praise be to God. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Here's God's response to David. Seriously? Did I ask for one? One. Did I ask for a house? And two, David, here's what you want to do to me. David, you want to take me and you want to relegate me to a building. You want to relegate me to a physical place. But I'm not a God who wants to be distant from my people. See, God's response is, uh, all this time, David, I've been with my people. I've been in in their deepest sorrows. I was there. I was present with them. And in their joys of life, I was present with them. And you want to take me and you want to sequester me to a a building that you're going to build? God says, no, 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 no. Come on, David, back up. I'm, I'm a God who's with my people. This is an incarnational principle that gets fully realized in Jesus when it says in John chapter 1 that he came and made his dwelling, literally his his tent, his tabernacle, that he pitched it among us. That's the way it literally reads. And he says to David, come on, I've been a God who's been with my people from the get-go. Don't rob me of that. He says, I didn't tell you to build a building. 
Now, just a quick time out. The building of, of buildings, physical buildings, isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's also not necessarily a good thing. But it's not necessarily a bad thing. I just don't think it's what God intends for David to spend his whole reign doing. See, because what God knows about David is you can spend the next 30 years building an awesome temple. Or you can spend the next 30 years building my kingdom. One of them's a sandcastle, David, and it may be an awesome sandcastle, but it's going to get wiped out someday. The tide is going to rise, and it's going to get demolished. And yeah, it might be beautiful, and yeah, it might be great, but David, I'm way more concerned with you not building a building, but David, with you investing in a kingdom. That's what I want from you, David. And I think as we sort of look into the future, one of the things we'll have to wrestle with is... How do we stay ruthlessly committed to building the kingdom rather than building a name? Because what David, what he says to David is, I don't want you to spend and invest your time on that. I have way more important things for you to do. And here's the, here's the key truth that I think God would want us to at least observe in this passage this morning. Is it our desire to build something for God? Oftentimes a noble and a good desire. Our desire to build something for God often prevents God from building something through us. Our desire to pull up our bootstraps and our desire to get to work and our, our Western sort of propensity to be productive in all areas of our life with every single little minute, could it be that sometimes our desire to build something for God often prevents God from saying, you're not the person I'm going to build something through then? See, we either, one or the other, do things for God or God does things through us. It's a big difference, friends. And he looks back at David and he goes, David, come on. Come on. You think you're going to do something for me, but hey, I I just want you to hold back a little bit because I'm going to be the one who's building and I'm going to be the one who's blessing and I'm going to be the one who's at work. How hard is it as a follower of Jesus to actually rest? To not try to, quote unquote, become a better Christian. Like, has that worked for anyone? Has anyone ever said, I'm going to try to be a better Christian? And actually in a year they go, yeah, I'm a better Christian. Well, actually, no, you're not. Because if you're admitting that, you're more prideful. Which means you're not a better Christian. So you don't become a better Christian by trying to be a better Christian. Actually, you become a better Christian, quote unquote, by allowing God to work in you and turn in you and by by operating your life in a posture of receiving rather than working and earning. Listen to the way that Paul says this in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Hey, he's going, I can't build anything anymore. Right? I mean, I can't do anything that's really going to last. I'm, I am, I'm dead, but Christ lives in me. This is a posture of God is working through me. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you know the, the best way to grow in your, the only way to grow in your relationship with the Lord, not just the best way, is to live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. And you go, well, well, at some point in our walk with Jesus, in some point of our, in our Christian life, don't we progress past that? 
Don't we move past just living by faith? And Isn't there some meat and some theology that we need to know? Well, here's the way Paul writes it to the Galatian church. Are you so foolish? So no offense. No offense if that's what you said. After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? His point is God started all this, and he's still at work, and he's still moving, and he's still working. And our goal as followers of Jesus isn't to try to build anything. It's to receive what he would give to us. And Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 say the same thing. So then just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, insert, by grace, through faith. That's how you received him, right? So if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, it wasn't because he built anything where God said, awesome, now you're accepted. And it wasn't because you cleaned up your act and God said, okay, now you can come and I will build my kingdom through you. No, it was by grace through faith that you started. And he says, so continue to live in him, rooted, built up, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. I have a hard time resting. I have a hard time, even in my relationship with the Lord, I have a hard time pausing long enough to ask God to work through me rather than me doing the work. Here's a a confession. Um, When I go on vacation, it takes me at least three to four days to stop thinking about this place. And even Kelly will say, like, don't, don't bring those books. Like, not the Bible. I bring the Bible. But, not, but like, all the other books. I'm going to read on discipleship. I'm going to read on, you know, how to be a better pastor. She's like, just, just leave it for a week. Because my tendency, like David's, is let's build something. Let's build something. I want to be a, quote, unquote, better leader. And so that means we build something. Let's, I want to build something with my life. I want it to count. And it's like I'm gathering all this sand and sculpting this beautiful sandcastle. And I think God says back to me, would you just for a second rest and receive and see what I might build through your life rather than what you can build for me. See, the truth of the matter is, is that God's promises become active in your life and my life when we receive them by faith, not when we earn them by all the awesome things that we can do for him. They become active. They become realized. They become fruitful. Jesus says, if you remain in me, then you'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. So the goal of the Christian life is to abide, to remain. It's not to build. It's not to accomplish. It's not to do. See, God does those things as we abide through us, but he says, your goal, remain in me. I don't need you to build anything. I'll take care of that. You just focus on loving me and giving me everything that you have and everything that you are. Here's how the passage continues, 2 Samuel verse 8. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. And we're going to get into a section of scripture that has a lot of first personal pronouns. This is God saying that he's going to do a lot of stuff. Now, as you go home, I'd encourage you, circle, go back through this passage and circle everywhere you see the word I, or everywhere God says he's going to do something. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the... Uh, from the pasture and from following the flock to be the ruler of my people, Israel. 
I have been with you wherever you've gone, David, and I have cut off your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did in the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over the people Israel. I will also give them rest, give you rest, from your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. It's so fun. It's, it's ironic as you read at the play on words there. Because in the Hebrew, the word house can either mean a physical dwelling place, house, or it can mean a dynasty. And so what God says to David is, David, thank you for the offer. And it's almost like, you know, my, my daughter loves to make um, cupcakes in the sandbox in, in the backyard. And she brings me a cupcake and she says, Dad, I got a cupcake for you. And I, and I look at her and I say, isn't, isn't that cute? I think God says back to David, David, isn't that, you're, David, you're cute. Thanks for the sentiment. Thanks for the offer. I'm sure it would have been a nice house, David. I'm sure it would have been, you know, a lot of rooms and a big palace, and, and I'm sure it would have been awesome, but I'll, I'll see your house, David, and I'll raise you a dynasty. How do you like that? And David, what you thought you were going to build absolutely pales in comparison to what I'm going to build through you. And what God says back to David is, David, your vision is far too small. David, your desire is far too small. You wanted to build a, a physical dwelling place, but David, what I'm going to build is a dynasty. What I'm going to build is something that will last forever. I'll make your name great, he says in verse 9. I'll give you a place to live forever, verse 10. I will give you rest, verse 11. I'll give you better than you wanted to give me, David. And here's the deal. Here, here, will you just look up at me for just a moment? When we set out to build something with our lives, if we build what we envision, best case scenario, we get what we envision. But when we open our lives to what God might want to do through us, we don't get what we envision. We get what God envisions. And can I just tell you, what God envisions to do through your life, what God envisions to do through this church, what God envisions to do in our community, in our city, is far greater than I think what we could ever dream and plan on our own. And I don't know about you, but I want to be the type of follower of Jesus where I rest in his presence long enough to let go of my dreams to build something for God and allow him to build something through me. But I can imagine, if, if I were David, that I would be a little bit offended. You're like, come on, David, or come on, God, I was, I was going to do something great for you. Don't you want a house of cedar? Aren't you tired of backpacking? You can lay down some roots and... Don't you... Isn't that, isn't that a good thing, God? Here's a... I think here's a truth that we see in, in David's life as God gives this great promise is that God often strips of us of our desires to allow us to walk into our destiny. He says to our blueprints for our life, way too small. And he crumples them up. And hey, 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 that process often hurts. 
Because I, I can remember being a senior in high school and, and looking forward to the baseball season and second game of the year, picking up a ball and throwing it sort of underhand and hearing my arm just pop. See, I had this plan. I was going to build something for God. I was going to be a professional baseball player, but, but I would give God all the glory. Most of it anyway. And what he did, he just ripped it out of my hands and it stung and it hurt and I didn't like him for it. But he ripped my desire out of my hand in order to lead me into my destiny that he had for, for me long before I ever knew he was on the radar screen. And he does the same thing for David. I think David's mind is absolutely blown. He goes, in an eternal kingdom? Like, not a, not a building, but a dynasty? All I wanted to do was get you out of the wilderness, God, and help you stop backpacking. But man, you have something way better for me. Way better. And he leads us into, in the next five verses, what Scripture calls the Davidic covenant. It's a covenant that God makes with David. It's what we call a unilateral covenant. It's, it's not God saying to David, David, if you do these things, then I will be good on my promise. It's God saying to David, this is a one directional promise, David. I'm going to do this. And David, you're going to screw up, but even your screw ups don't screw this up because I'm bigger than that. It's a unilateral covenant. This idea of, of covenant in scripture is a huge theme. From the Garden of Eden all the way into the new covenant and the new kingdom, we see that this is a theme that weaves its way all throughout scripture. Covenant, think of covenant as like um, a contract or a promise on steroids. It's taking it like one step further. Covenant literally means in the Hebrew, the word covenant literally means to cut, to cut. And, and, and what they would do in order to signify a covenant is they would make a sacrifice they would sacrifice an animal, they would cut it in half, and the two parties that were part of the covenant would walk through the animals. In order to signify, we're essentially dead to this covenant. This covenant owns us, that if we break it, our lives are over. It's pretty serious business. Our best example of covenant in our culture today is marriage. Is marriage. And so you've never been to a marriage ceremony, I don't think. Um, where the vows went something like this. <clears throat> if you promise to cook me dinner and keep the house clean, then I promise to mow the lawn and make sure your car runs. Right? I mean, you never, re you never hear a marriage ceremony where it's like, all right, if you get up early and make me breakfast and I'll make you dinner. And if you did... Nobody listening in the audience would go, oh, that's so romantic. Oh, isn't that awesome? They, they have an agreement to cook each other meals. No, 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 no. See, in, in covenant, we're more concerned with keeping our part than whether the other party keeps theirs. So that's why in marriage ceremonies, what you hear is, for better or for worse, we're in this together. For rich or for poor, we're in this. In sickness and in health, we're together. 
my, my dad wrote me a, on our anniversary a, a month back. He wrote me a letter and he said, I'm learning what it means to really carry out my marriage vow. Sickness and health. See, what God's going to do with David isn't trivial. It's not trite. It's not to be taken lightly because essentially what he's doing is he's saying, this is my job description, David. I'm taking away the house you wanted to build, but I'm leading you into a destiny that you could never imagine or realize on your own. And here's how it reads. Here's how it reads. Verse 12. When your days are over, And you rest with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. Notice all these eyes. I will rise up. I will establish. He's the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He's talking about Solomon here, because Solomon, David would actually gather all the resources to build the temple and leave them for Solomon. He's the one who will build the house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He will be, I will be his father, and he will be my son. Notice this imagery of of family, of fathership, of adoption, of of God inviting David into this like royal family. I'm going to be his father. And when he does wrong, I will punish him like any good dad does. With the rod of men, with flogging is inflicted by men, by, but my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed long before you, from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forevermore. God says, You can, David, you can build your life. On this promise. Don't worry about building me a house. I'm fine where I am, David, but you build your life on this promise. You shape everything you do and everything you think and every dream you have on the fact that I'm going to do far more abundantly than you could ever think or imagine. You wanted to build me a physical house that would last a few hundred years at best, but I want to build a dynasty out of you, David. I want to build a dynasty out of you. And he says a few things in this passage that really help us understand what he means in this covenant. And this is a covenant, the Davidic covenant points us straight through David to Solomon, but ultimately to Jesus. So that's why in the Gospels, when you read that that Jesus is this quote-unquote son of David, it's significant. Because God says, I'm going to do something that lasts longer than time. And what he does is he culminates it in the person and work of Jesus. So this covenant is not only for David, it's for you. It's for you. And let me explain to you what this covenant means for you. One, we see that it's God who's building something, not you. This is a covenant that is shaped by not what you can do for God, but what God wants to do through you. It's a covenant of grace over works. It's God saying to David, David, isn't that cute? I'm so glad you wanted to build me something, but just sit back and wait for what I'm going to build through you. He didn't earn it. He definitely doesn't deserve it. You can just read on a few chapters. You'll find that out. And God says, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to do it anyway. 
Isn't that your relationship with the Lord? I mean, God didn't, I don't want to offend you, but God didn't, God didn't choose you because you're awesome. He didn't redeem you because you're perfect and he had it all together. In fact, the very fact that you needed to be redeemed suggests that there was something that alienated you from him in the first place, and there was. We, in the new covenant under Jesus, the true king, we live under grace, not under works. Listen to the way that Paul writes it so wonderfully in Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. He saved us. He, Jesus, saved us. Not because we're awesome or because we could build something for him. It's not like he chose us because he thought, oh, yeah, Paulson can really build my kingdom. I'm going to choose him. Oh, thank you, Ryan. No, he's kidding. No, he chose us not because of the righteous things we'd done, but because of his mercy. Because he was good to us in spite of us. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that having been justified, having been redeemed, and having been saved by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. It's almost as though he invited us into a a, a dynasty. If you're an heir, co-heir with Christ, he says the things you want to build with your life are so small compared to the things that I have destined for you. Will you receive them by grace and stop trying to earn them and work on them? Second, second, in verses 12 and 13, he says, when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, quite literally, when you die, I will rise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. Here's the second thing he says is that this Davidic kingdom, this Davidic king, this promise coming through David, through Jesus to you is that life will triumph over death. He says to David, not only are you not going to build me a building, but I'm going to build a house out of you, a dynasty out of you. And not only, it's not going to just be through you. It's also going to be through your son, Solomon, but I'm not going to stop at Solomon. I'm going to keep building, David, and not even death can stop what I'm going to do. Does that remind you of anything that Jesus says to his followers? That he's a resurrection, he's a life, that, that even though you die, you don't die. What Jesus says is this life, although it comes to an end, is not the end. That's his promise. He says the same thing to David. David, you wanted to build me a sandcastle, but I want to build you an eternal kingdom. Which one is your life building? See, what the author of Hebrews says is that we're not enslaved to the fear of death anymore. Listen, since the children have flesh and blood, that's you and I, he too, Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who their whole lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. You see, the Davidic promise of a a life that transcends, an impact that transcends, an existence that transcends just you is realized when Jesus defeats death, the ultimate enemy. Verse 14, and I will be his father 
and he will be my son. He's talking about Solomon. He's talking about inviting him in to the divine kinship, that I'm going to be his father. I'm going to work through him. I'm going to discipline him. I'm going to lead him. And he says in verse 15, but my love will never be taken away from him. Translation, Solomon's going to screw up. Now, if you've ever screwed up, which I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, this should be a promise that you cling on to also because he says, David, your kingdom will not end because of the sinful effects and the decisions that your son makes. I'm better than that, David. I'm better than pulling back when sin enters into the picture, but I'm going to continue to work and I'm going to continue to shape and I'm going to continue to guide and I'm going to continue to lead. Even though the rulers are sinful, I will still, it's almost as though he says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And his message for us and for David is that he will be victorious over sin. This is good news. This is good news. Here's what what it means for you and for me is that God will not pull back because of the sinful choices that we'll make. He continues to pursue. He continues to hunt. He continues to chase because he loves you. Because he loves you. And there's some of you who are in this room today who you think you're the one chasing God. And I just want to say it's no accident you're sitting here this morning. That God is in hot pursuit of you. And, and he hears the truth of the matter. He's not interesting as great as you are, and I'm sure you are. He's not interested in what you can do to build his kingdom. He's interested in you receiving his grace and mercy and allowing him to build something through you. What he says to David is, I'm not pulling back because of the sinful decisions that your son's going to make. I'm going to continue to push forward and I'm going to continue to love and I'm going to continue to discipline and shape and mold, but I'm not taking my hands off of it. It's as though he whispers, not height or depth or angels or principalities or anything else in all of creation, including your stupid mistakes, David, can separate you from the love that I have for you. In Christ Jesus. That's good news. I thought maybe an amen would have come from that. Uh, amen. It's too late. It's too late. <laughs> Verse 16. Your kingdom, your house, and your kingdom will endure forever. Can you believe that? It's as though he says, David, bravo on the desire to build a house. I'm sure it would have been great, but I'm going to build something through you, David, that enters into eternity and transcends time. David, this doesn't end with you. David, this continues. Listen to the way that Psalm 89 recounts the rule and reign of David. It says, you said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your line. How long? 
forever and make your throne through all generations. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Do we include all? It's not a trick question. Yes. Yes, we do. So what does that mean? What are the implications for us? That means that if God promises to David, your throne will be a throne through all generations, not just in you, David, but through you and ultimately culminating in Jesus Christ. You know what that means? If he reigns through all generations, it means that he reigns in this generation. And if he reigns in this generation, it means that he reigns right now. That Jesus Christ rules and Jesus Christ reigns. And that's what all of these promises that God makes to David points through. Listen to the way that the gospel writer Luke puts, puts this when Jesus is born. You will be a child, or you'll be with child, he's talking to Mary, and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his father who? David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob. How long? Forever. Forever. Okay, we're catching on. And his kingdom will never end. Right, 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 right. Amen. Amen. See, okay, we're catching on now. Good. good. I, li- <laughs> I, like, I like that. So Jesus, when he came on the scene, he preached that repent, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near. My rule and my reign is present and my reign is now and my reign is here. And the question is not whether Jesus reigns. That's been settled. Jesus reigns. The question is whether or not you and I will submit under his rule. The question is whether we'll stop building sandcastles long enough to ask him what eternal things he might build and do through our lives. That when when will we zoom out of us and like David, think about what we can do for God and simply rest in his promise. Isn't it strange that Jesus says, all you who are laden, heavy burden, come to me. I'll give you more work to do. Come to me and rest. Come to me and allow me to build something through you that will blow your mind. Because it's something that's not based on what you can do, but based on what he can do. And it's something that our dumb choices cannot eliminate us from, but he is, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. He's good even in our shortcoming. And it's something that transcends time. And it's something that transcends your ability And so my question as we close this morning is if Jesus reigns, are you the type of person who has open hands, not with a hammer and a nail and I'm ready to build, but open to allow him to speak over you, to rule and reign in areas of our life, Areas of our life where we're struggling, areas of our life where we don't see progress happening. Are you going to allow him this morning? Are you going to stop building long enough to say back to God, God, would you do something with my life that I couldn't possibly imagine? And because of Jesus, his answer is, I would love to. Man, my prayer for me and for us 
is that we'd stop building sandcastles and position ourselves to be used for the eternal kingdom. Jesus, 